0: So are we taping right now? Taping always right live. Always live. <laughs> We're live in the studio right now. <laughs> well, welcome to the Seven Domains of Women's Health. And today in the studio, we have two of the stars of The Bundle of Hers, an award-winning podcast here from the University of Utah called The Bundle of Hers. So we have Margot and Arjeet. Yes. Arjeet, today in the studio, and I'm Kirtley Jones. And we want to talk about mental health. So we've talked a little bit about the seven domains and is mental health in the seven domains? Is it physical health or is it emotional health or is it both?
1: Go for it. I love that you asked this question. This is Margo, by the way. Um, And I applied into a program called triple board, which is a joint program with pediatrics and child psychiatry and adult psychiatry. And the reason I chose it is... It's the the hardest thing.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe med beads is the hardest thing or maybe cardiothoracic surgery, but I think triple board is awesome.
1: Thank you. But the reason I chose it is for the question that you just asked. And that is because I have felt like mental health and physical health are innately connected and we react physically to our emotional being and vice versa. And so I think you cannot exclude them. And historically, they have been siloed in the medical system.
2: Yeah, I think for me, similar to what Margot said, I think that they aren't things that are exclusive, but rather inclusive. They work together. You both get an emotional reaction to and also a physical reaction to. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was so interested in the field of psychiatry.
0: I remember uh, reading about 15, 20 years ago, an incredible article, very short article in the New England Journal, a really fancy uh, journal, and talked about the physical consequences of stress. Now, we always thought when I went to medical school, that stress causing physical problems was kind of woo-woo. You know, Mm -hmm. it was kind of granola girls and hippies thought that. And this was a really profound issue. Physical, emotional stress, or stress as perceived, however it might be, actually leads to permanent changes in the way our bodies process Our stress hormones and our immune system. And it was, it knocked me off my socks because I guess I knew that. I really knew that. But to have someone do the biology, the neurobiology, the endocrinology was great. But we need more because sadness, loneliness, anxiety, depression, you know, it's rampant it's a big deal. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think the stigma around it, especially when I am working in the adolescent clinics is a lot less and kids, they have way better language to talk about their mental health than I remember having in middle school and high school. And so I'm very encouraged by that. But at the same time, now that they're empowered with language, I think we're really uncovering the depths of or and the reality of mental health and depression and anxiety in our adolescent population.
0: So you think that it's the language that we've offered up or that's been more available to adolescents rather than we've created uh, a generation of uh, phone-addicted, anxiety-provoked social media addicts. So do you think it's that we finally gave them the language to talk about it and that's not that those of us who were boomers created a world that was so anxiety-provoking that we wrecked the next generation? (laughs) I'm a boomer. I'm a boomer. I admit I'm a boomer. (laughs) No worries. I think that's a very interesting
1: question. And I don't think we fully have all the data, you know, to like make that correlation. I would say social media contributes. I don't think we know or fully understand to what extent. I do think the language uncovers a lot of things that may have existed prior that Mm -hmm. we didn't know about. And because the stigma was to not talk about mental health unless you were until you were in crisis, we may not have fully understood and some people can endure with subacute depression and anxiety and just think that that's normal because they've never been able to talk to others or have a language and develop that way. So I think that's an interesting point. I, I don't know or have the data.
2: What do you think, Harjeet? Yeah, I think that is a complicated question. I think that there's maybe a combination of both. I think one that it doesn't feel like such a taboo, like I have depression or I have anxiety. So people talk about it more. We find that there are more people that suffer from that. But I also think there's this huge factor of the way that our cultural norms in our society are progressing towards. I definitely think social media has a factor in it. I definitely think technology has a factor in it. I definitely think there's a combination of things that are happening. And like Margot said, there's not concrete data, but you can pick up on themes and clues, you know, growing up here and like looking at the way. Society works. I think that that definitely is contributing. But I also agree that now, because people talk about it more, you'll see more cases. Because now there's the words and language, you'll see a lot. But before in older generations, I'm sure it existed. It's just people didn't want to talk about it.
0: I would argue that you can give two, three, and four year olds, and I'm not the only one who's arguing, some very famous neuroscientists are saying that we can teach two, three and four year olds uh, emotional intelligence. and we've talked on the scope about the ruler project, which is from Princeton, I think. And it's um, can be used at any level, but the ruler project is you recognize that you're feeling something. You understand a little bit you why you're feeling it. You label it. you give it, you have to have the words, to label it. Mm-hmm. You have to express it to people. This is what I'm feeling, and this is maybe why. And then you have to regulate it. Mm -hmm. So you can teach kids the words when someone's feeling as a parent, you can take your two year old and say, oh, I can see you're feeling sad or this makes you mad. Or we could actually, as new parents, come up with those little, little words on the refrigerator with all the different emotional labels that you give kids. So they've got words for how they feel. And then mirror with them when you see them behaving a certain way that looks like a certain emotional state, give them the word for it, Mm -hmm. help them understand it, help them express it in words, and then help them regulate it. I think we are all going to be living with emotional states, how we come to some understanding that this is normal or this is not normal Mm -hmm. and I need help. That's a complicated thing. Well, I'm concerned some about the rise in the rates of suicide, particularly actually in young people, meaning the 20 to 30-year-olds. But in fact, the biggest jump has been in men and women in their 50s and 60s. And so it's a complicated issue as I think about how to help people. And well, I'm going to take a little tack here and talk about AA. It turns out that a Cochrane collaboration, which looks at the evidence that shows something works or not, found that AA is actually better than cognitive behavioral therapy, Alcoholics Anonymous, for helping people stay sober and stay sober for longer. And I was thinking about MA, mental (laughs) health. I mean, there is something about getting together with people and holding hands, not right now, of course, during the coronavirus thing, but being with people who can sympathize uh, with each other. And it's free. All walks of life suffer from mental illness, but people who have the largest burden are in the lowest socioeconomic strata, and they can't necessarily afford what it costs to get mental health. The New England Journal has now started um, an editorial series, a case series on social health, where social health interacts adversely with physical health, people's health care, and it's almost always financial. It's when they run out of money. When the kid at home doesn't have any care, when they can't bring their dog in because they don't, you know, the hospital doesn't let them, or they can't pay for their care anymore. So financial um, resilience allows people the kind of care that might help them deal with mental illness. But people who aren't financially stable, or their illnesses made them financially unstable, leaves them in our country with really no safety net. I think it's
1: another sign that our system is broken and not caring for people that contribute or could contribute to society. And it's unjust to me to know that if you have money, you can afford the treatments and continue on your life the way it was maybe before you had this disorder. And if you don't have access, then you're on the street, essentially. And I don't think that's fair, that money should dictate who gets treated and who doesn't. The thing that blew me away in psychiatry was noticing that the physicians had to do quote unquote one-to-one. So where the attending who's taking care of the patient on an inpatient unit has to call another provider who's never met the patient at the insurance company and basically defend for their right to be in the hospital. And I've never seen that. If a person had pneumonia and they lived in Wyoming and it was snowing, we'd keep them for an extra day. No questions asked but if a second that person was feeling a little bit better that day the insurance is on the phone saying hey your patient's no longer suicidal we're not going to pay for them anymore and that then
2: they was, go out
0: to live on the streets when it's snowing
2: yeah and that blew my mind away i think the difficult part there is the value is not being placed on these mental health conditions, because the people that are impacted by these mental health conditions, because the psychological and social factors are generally the ones that also don't have the power, they're already marginalized communities. So it's just a perpetual cycle of not getting things fixed. A third view of this is
0: there are people with chronic conditions, let's say it's kidney failure, or it's a cancer, or it's something that's really awful, and their insurance company only pays for X amount, and the family is Family, which is supportive, has gone through every resource they have. We see this with kids who are addicts. The parents have put them into expensive rehabs three times, and now they have no more money. Or someone only gets nine visits a year with the mental health professional, and if you have a chronic illness, nine is not enough. Um, So even well-meaning families that have some money, they're middle class and they're working. All of their savings, their retirement can go into paying for, it might be rehab or it might be for a hospitalization that only pays for one day and somebody needs three months. These are really difficult things for families and families can run out of money in a hurry when they have a kid who needs a lot of financial mm-hmm. support and Insurance companies under, I think, support, under support mental illness.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it comes back to that value that's placed on it. And also, when we think of health in general, when someone has pneumonia, you can see it on a chest x ray, you know, it's a lot of having trust in providers to know that they know what they're doing. Right. Which I think often people want proof. We live in a kind of a world like prove it to me kind of thing. I remember growing up with that like prove this or to me, like prove it to picture me. Picture or
1: it didn't happen. Like take yeah. a picture, or it didn't happen. Yeah,
2: exactly. So I think that things are more complicated than that, and it's complex. That's why you talk about the seven domains of women's health. Things aren't just a one dimensional picture, right? And I think that's what's difficult for a lot of people that do have the power to place that value, right? But there's something about being surrounded by your peers,
0: and this is what you guys have done in Bundle of Hers, is making this group of women who can talk about what you're going through. What do you think about this in your practice about group therapy, whether it's supervised or not? Women love to talk to each other, and this is we're talking about the (laughs) seven names of women's health, and we're women, all women in the studio today. What do you think about group therapy for mental illness? I think
1: you've hit on a very important point, which is isolation can be one of the key driving factors for mental health disorders. And I think that's part of the reason social media plays a factor, too, is it can be very isolating. And I think one of the reasons why AA works, like you were saying, is the community aspect coming together face to face, being vulnerable in a shared community is very important. And I think like Harjeet was saying, a lot of our society is moving towards a very individualistic approach. And I think that's isolating a lot of people and sort of driving maybe these rise in you know, suicide rates or um, increase in mental health disorders being diagnosed. Um, but I do agree that the access to mental health care is not good. And even in our the way we practice in our system, from a psychiatry standpoint, is a one-on-one interview. But patients who are admitted do go through group therapy. And I think that a lot of the patients really, from what I've observed, benefited from that, especially on the adolescent side. They seem to really connect with those who are going through a similar experience. And I think that's very helpful for them.
2: I, I will say again, my naive thoughts because I'm just starting this career and I think there'll be a lot of things that I will grow in and understand. If you go back to let's go back to kind of like the starting of civilization right a lot of people worked in groups and tribes and like hunted together and like we're, we're together right and i think as people were meant to be that way that's why we have the bundle of hers where we vent to each other if something's stressing us out or we hang out with our friends we socialize um, women get together and talk you know things like that and i think Again, there's a lot of gendered issues as well because it's more acceptable for women to get together and talk than men, right? So there's a We're whole. We're working on that. Yeah, here, the
0: scope. We're working
2: on it. Yes. But- So there's a lot of complex things that are going into it. But yes, I do feel like there's large value in group therapy. And I think that it is something that is already known. That's why it's existing in a lot of mental health spaces. And I think, like Margot said, we're kind of born to be together as people. So it's really the isolation is kind of that big theme that's being hit on really changes the way that we function. Right. I I believe that
0: profoundly. We have this big frontal lobe, not so that we can make rockets that go to the moon, but that we can assess the social situation that we're in. And we have language so that we can connect in ways that are powerful. So they did actually some very, I think, critical work in Africa, where there was a fair amount of post-traumatic stress among refugee populations and people who were under financial stress and um, under war, war situations. And they trained women in a village to be mental health workers. And these were women who had no other skills necessarily, except they were seen as being emotional leaders in the village. And those women started doing group therapy in their villages. And they found that the rates of depression and anxiety dropped in those villages where they had mental health workers who were just people seen as having a touch of wisdom or a touch of empathy or a touch of believability get women, again, we're talking about women here, but get women together and it works when we get together with people we trust and we grow to love and you need a constant dose. So people who do AA, they keep going. They just keep going to meetings it's not like, oh, I feel better. Mm -hmm. They know that they've got to keep going because a mental illness is often a relapsing disease. And I know that having um, a safe place and having an income and having a family that's supportive um, are all ameliorating factors for people with schizophrenia. But the natural course of this devastating disease and bipolar disorder is that it pushes people away from their support and they end up on the streets. And it's the saddest thing to me, it is the saddest thing to me to, to see homeless men and women whose brains just don't work at all and they don't feel safe around people and they're cold. I mean, it's <laughs> this gets to me like nothing else because these are biological diseases we barely understand and the consequences to families, it just wrecks families mm-hmm. to have their, their sibling, their kid
2: alone on the street. I think there's a huge issue in the structural systems that exist in this country um, when it comes to mental health, I think because it's barely being recognized as important and necessary um, is kind of where we are starting to see kind of um, movements pushed in that direction. But because of the, that lack, I think that's why we're in the position we are today. And I also think a lot about when I am doing an assessment, basically we get all the data, we figure it out, we figure out what per- disease a person has, and then we make a plan for that. And um, a lot of the assessment when it comes to psychiatric illnesses has three domains, right? There's the biological, there's the psychological, and there's a the social aspect. And they work very strongly together. And the social aspect is there. It's one third of the reason that this person is presenting the way they are. So it really impacts the way a person will both carry with that pathology or disorder or disease and how it will impact then their life from there. Yeah,
1: I agree with Harjit just said. And the reality is our healthcare fails. Our system fails these people. And I think one of the hardest things going into residency is not going to be the time, but having to discharge those people who have no resources back
0: to the street. Like that with, would just break my heart. With
1: only like two weeks worth of medication, knowing full well that they will not be able to probably afford or have access to that medication to therapy or to continue. And so we are very much part of this cycle that is broken. So I think, like Harjit said, it, it is a little bit encouraging that now it is less taboo, it is less, it is more recognized that it is a big issue in our society. And so there's very slowly coming to be legislation and changes into insurance to write these things, but it's it needs to happen
0: faster. And I think that people, once they have the diagnosis of something like bipolar disease or schizophrenia can usually get on. Many of them can get on Medicare. I mean, Mm -hmm. they have a lifetime disability as much as anybody who has a renal transplant or is on dialysis. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's more deadly. They're more likely to die in 10 years than someone who's got kidney failure. And, it's just the, we just make it hard to access things. You have to have right. a good brain to be able to get on the bus and find a bus pass to get to someplace that might be able to help you. And I'm thrilled that one of our homeless clinics, one of our clinics that takes care of homeless people has a mobile van that goes to mm-hmm. the homeless shelters and that we've created shelters where people don't get kicked out at eight o'clock in the morning and have to line up at night to see if they might get a place to stay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, it's so hard. And you are going to be seeing teenagers are when these awful diseases present.
1: Yeah. And I think that also plays deeply into the social situation as well. A, being able to recognize and have access to getting your child the care that they need. Um, or feeling trust in the system to begin with. And then having some sort of understanding of what the physician is telling you, because the word schizophrenia has been so tainted by Hollywood, I would say, that most people have this idea that schizophrenia is like a a split personality disorder. I think that sentiment is very much um, still held by the general public. And so there is a lot of misinformation about mental health. And even when a family hears the word schizophrenia, it is so fear inducing and i think we really need to have honest conversations with our patients about like what it means the the truth of that disorder and not just assume that everyone knows what schizophrenia is that was my experience with one family and how terrified they were to get that diagnosis for their child going back to what you were saying about the women in the village or AA, I don't think those groups would be as successful if they were led by people who did not have the same experience as the people they were talking to or creating community around. So for example, if I as a white person went to that village in Africa and tried to host that group, I don't think it would be as successful. And so I think that really feeds for the need of people with diverse backgrounds and experiences, whether that's mental health or, within the criminal justice system and giving those people opportunities to come in and be these leaders to create community and make change that way. And I think we have to think differently about the way we're doing things and building community.
2: I 100% agree with Margot on that point, because I think that's another reason why I'm very motivated in, to go into psychiatry as a woman of color. It's something that I haven't seen often. And I think that Me having my experiences and background will hopefully in some way allow me to see things differently and um, treat my patients differently, just as Margo with her experiences will be able to treat her patients differently. And I think that's the reason why we are very big advocates of pushing diversity in medicine, making sure that every field is diverse. But that's difficult because I think another issue going back to like homelessness is um, there's certain uh, racial identities, certain sexual identities, certain gendered identities that are more impacted right. um, than others. Right. And I think that we always try to see things separately, like this is healthcare, this is politics, this is education, but they're all intertwined and you really can't separate those. But we things. as women, yeah. we know the seven domains are
0: interwoven into this tapestry right. of what makes us be who we are. So what would be the characteristics of someone who had well-being, who had good mental health?
2: Wow, that's a good question. That is a good question. So basically, I think first we focus on the individual, right? Every individual has an identity. They have several identities and they form that throughout their life, especially when they're teenagers. That's kind of like when they're really figuring out who are they, what do they like, what do they want to be. But that keeps on going on forever. Once... They figure that out. They live in a world with people. Now, if those people don't support that, it gets really hard because you're having to sacrifice who you are. And I think that complicates issues. So I think that's a really huge part of mental health is that knowing, being able to formulate your identity and being supported with that through the communities you're a part of. Now, that is thinking about like depression anxiety etc but again there's also the biological component right some people might be born like you know quote unquote born with have a biological reason why they have a pathology so then it makes it a little complicated
1: i would say that i feel like sometimes there's this misconception that we with the push for like you know like hashtag wellness like we should be well all the time But I think it's important to recognize that our emotions naturally flux up and down. And it is natural and normal to feel sad and down. And that is part of being a well-rounded human being is experiencing the whole spectrum of emotions. And I think allowing yourself to be comfortable sitting with those quote-unquote negative emotions is building sort of an emotional fitness and gears you towards wellness and i think like you're talking about the seven domains is is represented in this circle and it and it very much is a circle and a cycle and we should be comfortable riding that cycle and for me that's a fundamental part of wellness of course that's easier said than done because we're socialized to hide or stuff away those negative emotions because they're seen as weak or whatnot. But I think the more we can talk about like, hey, I'm feeling down today. I'm feeling and I think we've been really good. And I really appreciate having my group of friends in the bundle of hers is to be honest and be like, I'm feeling depressed today. And just like have a space and a community to come around. So I think for me, number one, that is a key identity of wellness is emotions are fluid and you don't always have to feel happy.
2: Yeah. And I think before medical school, we did an um, episode on our podcast around mental health. And I talked a lot about how I was very depressed for a couple of months before starting medical school. And I think a lot of it came from understanding what I went through as a child, which I had kind of avoided and it kind of came up to the forefront. And um, I think when we talk about strength and resiliency, I think it's something that we kind of learn and practice and grow with. And I also recognize that a lot of the tough times or the bumps in the road that I've been with, the effects or the outcomes of that are still affecting me to till this day. And that's the thing with mental health. A lot of stuff just builds on top of each other. Like Margo said, you can't do this work in like a week or two weeks. It takes months and months and years and years and something we have to continuously work on. And you also said it was like a relapsing thing. I think that I also recognize that emotional intelligence is knowing that kind of the behaviors that you take and the actions that or the outcomes that come out of it, they still impact you in the future and being OK with that and also understanding that and uh, managing that in the best way possible is kind of like the big thing that I think helps build that strength and resiliency. I think we all have it in us to be strong people. And I think a lot of people are. Um, I think it's just something that we also need to recognize that it's a continuous process as well. Yeah. Well, for me now, I remember I'm a
0: reproductive endocrinologist by training. So when my, and memories are always selective, but I will say that my Struggles with mental, with my brain state or mental health had to do when I was in my late teens through my 30s. And as a woman who always had irregular periods, I did not know. I knew I would be troubled with episodes of feeling, you know, I'm down and lonely, I'm going to eat some worms. <laughs> this is a great little nursery rhyme um, about being de- sad and lonely. And then my period would come, and I didn't really know before I went to medical school there was such a thing as PMS. Mm-hmm. And because my cycles weren't regular, I couldn't always predict that was going to happen. But eventually I realized there were some biological determinants of how I felt about myself and my place in the world. And as a woman, that's not something that men necessarily... Um, appreciate but I appreciated it more and more and then I when I would feel that way I would say this is temporary Um, I'm going to go out for a walk and no I'm not going to eat chips and chocolate which would be my first thing because that just makes me feel worse and the second thing which is again uniquely a woman is that by the time I was in my 30s and early 40s I had some skills had some powerful skills because there'd been some bad stuff that happened but I was not ready to be a mother, so. It's very interesting that you look at the brain of women who are pregnant and their brains are being rewired in many ways um, and the way, almost the way adolescents are. And so when I had a kid, when my kid wasn't happy, I was in a tailspin. I could deal with my own unhappiness, but when my kid was struggling, I just went into a tailspin. I would weep and it took me a long time again. So now I get to reinvent the Myself as a mother. And these are uniquely women's biological issues. felt biological like mm-hmm. why and I don't know whether you two are mothers uh, yet no but I
1: will I will say I am doing fertility treatment right now and I am taking high doses of progesterone and it, I am incredibly irritable and depressed and tearful and all the things and it is <laughs> awful and so yes everything that you have naturally is amplified by like a thousand and it sucks. Well, I hope that yeah.
0: one of these days soon your period doesn't come yeah. to get to get you over it because yes. your period doesn't come, and then you get to go through it all. Maybe not. Maybe you won't. Um, as a mother, but yeah. now, but you know, and I think that was very. I thought I had myself tucked in, mm-hmm. and then I got totally untucked.
2: Yeah, I think that. I'm, I'm also not a mother, but I'm a daughter, and um, I've also seen a lot of people in my community and within my own family. I think when you see your children in emotional pain, it's really painful for a, mo- a mother or a caretaker, uh, any individual that takes care of their child to deal with, and it kind of is interesting because a lot of times, we talk about this a lot, that how trauma can be like passed from generation to generation oh, to generation. So even in that sense how your family or those around you cope with mental health also impacts how you cope with mental health or are impacted by it. Talking again about the psychosocial biological factors of It's mental epigenetic. Health. There's some yeah. impo- very powerful data right. about what happens
0: to the fetus if a mother is is very anxious or depressed. Yeah. And the way their brain is rewired is wired differently.
2: Yeah. So I think there's again a lot of factors in that I think
0: I think to what you're
1: saying, Harjita, and what we were talking about earlier is that it comes back to community and how mm -hmm. we're all intricately connected and sort of wired. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of wired to be attuned. Like you're talking about our frontal lobe. We're wired to be attuned to the emotional state of others. And I think the connection between family maybe makes that stronger for some cases. But I think it is. Quality or characteristic of being human to feel for others, especially when they're in emotional despair, quote unquote, or upset.
0: Right. I think that spiritual health profoundly underlies some of the tools for which we can develop our sense of well-being. And I, w- I am not a religious person. I don't um, hang my hat or my coat or my sweater on any religious principles. But I do feel like I am part of something bigger. And when I'm not feeling at my best, doing something for somebody else, being part of something bigger than myself, and I've been lucky to have a career in which that was a focus, that was more powerful than anything for me. For people who have a spiritual practice, whatever it might be, I would say if you ask what my religion was, I'd say I'm a biologist because the biological world gives me a profound spiritual platform Mm -hmm. from which to feel awe and wonder. But if you have something that's bigger than you that you can spend some time with, so it's easy to get there. So working on your mental health, this is something that I think you have to do every day. And if you establish these practices, whatever they might be for you to be part of something bigger, that's such that it comes easier. But as empathetic individuals as that you've found yourselves to be, and you've exposed your empathy in your podcast, the bundle of hers, you will be every day bumping up against people who are having the worst days or years or life. How are you not going to cry every schizophrenic that you see that lives on the street? How are you going to make yourself get through that? I think I couldn't. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So I think it's okay to cry. It shows humanistic. I mean it shows humanism and it is sad so why shouldn't we cry why should we hide that is For that me, what good
0: psychiatrists do i mean
1: what's <laughs> don't, a good psychiatrist? I, I mean yes you have to <laughs> like, have some composure in front of your patient but i i wouldn't say that i would go back and not cry if i felt sad but part of that motivation is if that is happening and it has frequently feeling so overwhelmed by the situation is that I am entering into this as a part of the system and I am, I cannot function when something is broken. And so taking steps to fix it, to legislate, to advocate for change in legislation, to advocate for those patients is the way that I'm going to combat it and not just sit idly by and cry. I'm, I'm still going to cry. I'm a big crier
0: and I, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, I wasn't, I wasn't a big cry until I had a kid. So this is another I'm, one thing that got totally unplugged. No um,
1: worries. No. Yeah. So I think, first of all, I think physicians, it's totally appropriate to tear up if your patient is, especially like with kids who have had histories of abuse and they're telling you that it is sad and we should cry if that's what your emotions telling you. And I think that helps us connect, but that can be a whole different story for
0: another day. That's a story for another day <laughs> is how you build your own strength into your practice. So normally I end a podcast with a haiku, except anything I might say pales in face of what Harjit said about the importance of the person. So she's going to finish up, but I'm going to stick my haiku right in here. Resilience in hard times. Have the heart to see it through, to feel and give love.
2: I love that. So cool. The final words for the podcast. I think for me, it's having that bigger understanding that I'm doing this for something. And I think that though every patient I hear, I'm listening to their story and I'm feeling connected to them. And like Margot said, sometimes there'll be, you know, I will cry. Maybe it'll be after every patient, but it just reminds me that there's so much to do. And that's what I need to focus on. That what will be the best for my patient so they can be healthy individuals, so we can build healthy communities, so we can have healthy societies, and so we can have a healthy world. I think it's like that. Every person counts. And I think people don't often in people don't believe that every person counts, but I believe that. And that's what keeps me going every day.